of computer programming, an edge case is a situation that requires special handling or consideration, possibly even manual management, despite the rest of the system being highly automated. One fairly common example of an edge case is a name that is way too long for the form you're trying to fill out. This is a pernicious enough issue on individual forms, especially documents like driver's license paperwork or bank account applications but it's even more troublesome when found in databases because just a few dominant database frameworks are used around the internet and on essentially every government and corporate computer. So if your name happens to be Janice K. Ihana Iku Kwakihula He Eka Ona Ele, hopefully I got that right, which is an actual Hawaiian surname with 36 characters, and one of them is an apostrophe, you will very likely have trouble, not just on individual forms, but every computer-based system in existence, from the DMV to the bank to signing up for social networks. In the case of that particular Hawaiian surname, the woman was able to petition the Hawaiian government to change their data entry rules so that her full name could be printed on her driver's license. But again, that doesn't really help her across essentially every other computer system on the planet. Other edge cases are less linguistically cumbersome, but even more tricky in a way, because their issues are less evident, except in some cases to computer programmers, making them more difficult to predict ahead of time and handle before these database products go to market. A woman named Jennifer got married and adopted her husband's surname, Null, N-U-L-L, -L, in the process. Null is only four characters long, but it's also a difficult name to have in the age of digitization, because in the world of databases, null is code for nothing here or no data. So it's not a matter of telling the database something that's difficult to compute. That name is telling the database that the field containing it has nothing in it. It's unfilled. There's no data, which makes a workaround more than a little bit difficult as that term is still being used for its computerized purpose, designating fields which lack data elsewhere in the software. And that example brings us to the real issue here. Our digitized world is predicated on just a few core technologies, technologies upon which all of our other technologies are built and balanced. And one of them is databases. Databases, in concept, are simple structures. They are tables of data, basically. Excel spreadsheets are ultra-simple, visualized databases. But like Excel spreadsheets, databases can quickly become very complex and cumbersome, depending on how you use them. You can lasso a bunch of different charts and spreadsheets and graphs and such together and tie the data on these various documents together as well. You can embed spreadsheets within spreadsheets within spreadsheets and make sums on the top level dependent on calculations and formulas computed on the bottom level. Databases allow us to organize our expenses, but they also allow us to display information on websites and collect data from users using forms. They enable the dynamic web, meaning, essentially, the entirety of the modern web. The web with sites that change based on who's viewing them, based on data that's been amalgamated from different sources. And they allow apps and operating systems and pretty much everything else digital and useful to operate. 
And yet, as I said, databases are flawed. People with long, interesting Hawaiian names are not invited to the usefulness party. People named Null are immensely screwed. The same is true to varying degrees for people who live in obscure regions and who are presented with limited or incorrect values on forms that they're meant to fill out online, or people who are extremely old or young, extremely tall or short, or who don't fit within some other conventional range for data that is collected using databases, which allow for a finite range of answers. Many of the same data collection techniques that make life simpler for most of us make life immeasurably more difficult for folks on the fringes, for edge-case individuals who may never have considered themselves to be unusual in any way, but who are forced to operate as weirdos, forced to call the airline to book a flight, to argue with the DMV attendant every time they want to update something on their driver's license, to be a special case in every case. And that's kind of what I want to talk about today. Not edge cases and databases specifically, but the difficulties inherent in collecting data, and more specifically, the difficulties inherent in documenting and housing and transporting and securing and utilizing, but also owning and even selling data once we have it. You are listening to Let's Note Things. I'm Colin Wright. Let's Note Things is an independent listener-supported show. If you're enjoying it, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash letsnotethings. You can also contribute via PayPal or Venmo or another option of your choice. Pop on over to letsnotethings.com to find links to those options. Another incredibly helpful but deceptively simple way that you can help support this show is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts or iTunes specifically, because it is the most used common source of distribution of podcasts. So leaving a review there typically allows those reviews to be disseminated far and wide, and more reviews, especially positive ones, but reviews in general, tend to help the credibility of a show. So when somebody hears about this show, they might check to see how many reviews there are and if they're generally positive, and then they will be more likely to give it a shot. Leaving such a review only takes a moment or two, and the word-of-mouth style benefits that reverberate from that action are outsized compared to the effort required. So if you have the opportunity, that would be very much appreciated. But of course, reviews on any other service that you might happen to use for your podcasts is also very much appreciated. Thank you very much. All right, let's get back to the show. There is a topic that I've mentioned in passing in previous episodes that I believe deserves more focused attention. And that topic is usually called by the decidedly unsexy moniker, data portability. One of the main thesis points of this show in general is that information silos are artificial and everything we might learn is actually connected, even if distantly, to every other thing we might learn. And the topic of data portability makes a strong case for that thesis. It manages to directly connect to a massive assortment of topics that are dominating news coverage today, even if it itself seldom gets the full attention it deserves. 
We talk about data portability when we discuss advertising, tracking, portable technologies in the mobile internet, the ever-swelling size of modern corporations, the blockchain, the concept of personal sovereignty, audio interfaces, the gig economy, autonomous cars, streaming services, universal basic income, immigration policies, and discussions about privacy and anonymity. And today, I will talk about some of those overlaps, those intersections of topical relevance. But to get there, let's start with an article that was published recently on Motherboard, which is entitled, What is going to happen with who is? And the subtitle is, A New European Data Privacy Law and Official Internet Policy Are About to Conflict with Each Other. This article details a legal conflict that will emerge in May of 2018, when the General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR, goes into effect in the European Union. The GDPR will demand, among other things, that internet service providers, such as domain registrars, the companies that sell you URLs, the addresses, the .coms, the .co.uk's, and such, that you type into a browser to visit a website, it'll require that those companies do not make information about their customers publicly available to anyone who wants it. The GDPR is an act that is meant to protect the rights of consumers, and it's meant to do that primarily by protecting their data in various ways. And part of that means managing how it's collected, handled, and utilized by corporations. This regulation by itself seems reasonable and innocuous enough. Don't publicize the data about your customers. Don't make it available to spammers and fishers and doxers and abusers of all shapes and sizes. That does not seem like a huge ask except for the fact that the ICANN, short for the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers, which is the nonprofit organization responsible for regulating online namespace-related things, including the aforementioned domains and the registrars that sell them, they have this thing called WHOIS, which is essentially a registry of all the registrar information related to domains on the web, meaning you can search the WHOIS database to see who owns a particular website, where their business is located, and a slew of other potentially useful bits of information. Useful if you're a journalist looking for a source, if you're a buyer looking to purchase a particular domain name, if you're an internet security expert doing research, or if you are a spammer looking for information to scrape up and use for nefarious purposes. The WHOIS database is less useful than it used to be, as many registrars will today allow their customers to register anonymously, keeping their names and addresses and such out of that searchable database. But it is still a legal requirement to have something up for every domain, even if it's just a notification that this particular domain was registered via this particular registrar. Getting that information out there and keeping it updated is one of the legal requirements of operating that type of business. And this is where we run into conflict. On one side, we have a framework put into place by the worldwide managing body of the web requiring that data about people buying online property be posted online for anyone to see and have access to. And on the other side, we have a regulation saying that, in the very near future, companies cannot legally post that type of information about their customers in public places, like, for instance, on the internet. The WHOIS list 
is broadly helpful for a variety of research and security and journalism-related tasks. But the GDPR is something that could increase consumer protections for a huge swath of the global population. That these two legal structures are coming into conflict represents the broader conflict between these two priorities. Now, what we're seeing happen today is a result of this impending legal throwdown. And it will be a massive global conflict, despite this being a regulation for the EU, not the whole world. Because in practice, if you are a company that wants to operate worldwide, which most companies operating online do, you need to adhere to those regulations or risk being heavily fined or booted from that region entirely. But what we're seeing as a result of this impending legal conflict is a series of proposed middle ground measures, most of which have been proposed by internet companies like domain registrars. And ICANN, in turn, has used those proposals to present options for companies to choose from in the interim, while this new legal reality gets sorted out. But some companies are taking preemptive action. In particular, GoDaddy, the world's biggest domain registrar, has announced that they will be stripping their WhoIs directory listings of names, phone numbers, and email addresses beginning at the end of January. This is a move that they are presenting as being in their customers' interest, and arguably that's true, as their listings in particular them being the biggest domain registrar in the world, are tempting targets for robocall directories and spammers. But it's also a decision that is very much in their interest for two main reasons. The first is that they will no longer be required to commit resources to keeping these databases updated, at least not to the same degree as before. That many data entries, even if they're not updated constantly, and some never change, it still demands a good deal of time and attention. And that means a solid chunk out of their potential profits being utilized to keep those directories updated. But perhaps even more importantly, and here's where we get back to that topic I mentioned a few minutes ago, this allows them to keep that data, those names and that contact information, to themselves. It allows them, in short, to keep that data as an asset, making it unavailable to their competitors and it allows them to use it for their own profitable purposes, or at the very least, to deny it to others who might use it for their own profitable purposes. Data of the kind these registrars have on hand is valuable. That type of data, names and accurate contact information attached to those names, is worth real-life actual money, either because of internal use, them being more capable of upselling you their own products, or by receiving commissions from affiliated companies by co-promoting to you, or by selling your information to data brokers. Data brokers, sometimes called information brokers, collect information about you, and everyone else from a variety of sources package that information together and then sell it to social media companies, insurance companies, marketing companies, and ad networks, among many, many others. The more specific and complete the data, the more valuable it is. So just having a name may be worth nothing at all, unless you combine it with a million other names all attached to a specific region, at which point that collection may be worth a hundred bucks to someone. But if you can combine that name with a real-world address and a phone number and an email address, it could be worth 
$45 or $500. If you combine that information with income information, spending habits, with social media usage statistics, with health info and geolocation numbers, your information can be worth thousands of dollars to the right company. I found a lot of different estimates for this from sources that use a bunch of different methods to arrive at their figures, everything from how much value Google provides you in services in exchange for your data to how much data brokers spend to gather additional data points and how much they sell bundles of what amount to complete identity outlines for. And the range is from somewhere around $45 to somewhere around $5,000. Again, depending on how complete the information being provided happens to be. So that's for one complete package, one person's complete package of information. And again, that's part of why companies like GoDaddy might take advantage of any excuse to keep that data they have about you secret. If it's out there in the ether, on the who is list, it's not exclusive and anyone can get to it for free. If they, and only they, have that information, then they can sell it or they can use it for other profitable purposes. When Microsoft bought LinkedIn in 2016, it's estimated that when pricing out the network to know what to offer for it, they valued each active user on LinkedIn at about $260. In isolation, $260 is not much to a corporation on the scale of LinkedIn, but in aggregate, that's a lot of money. $26.2 billion, in fact. And that data that Microsoft paid for is then usable by Microsoft for a variety of purposes. Everything from selling it to brokers and ad networks to using it, using our activities on that network and our personal information that is shared with that network to train their artificial intelligence software and flesh out their demographic databases. There is evidence that this type of data, these bundles of data points, are going to be increasingly valuable in the coming years. And part of why this is the case is that we are awash in new data sources, all of which help us better identify and categorize individuals while also predicting what they want, what they'll buy, at what price, and even what products and services companies should be offering to best serve the currently unserved and underserved needs of these individuals. Some of that data we are offering up knowingly, purposefully, willfully, sending it out to our Facebook and Instagram feeds, posting it on Twitter, sharing it with our networks on LinkedIn. Other bits are being collected passively via sources we know are tracking us. Data from our fitness trackers and audio devices, for instance, are amalgamated with other data to, in theory at least, achieve better outcomes for the people using such devices. But that data, of course, is generally also used for more than just improving the product, just like all other data that we generate. And then there's the data that we produce, but that most of us generally don't think about. The information that we provide to grocery stores when we use our membership or savings cards. The location and use data provided to technology and car companies when we drive our fancy new electric semi-autonomous cars around town or use built-in GPS devices. Some of our apps, too, even those that don't seem particularly interactive, that have no good customer-facing excuse to be collecting data about us, are collecting data about us. If you are playing a free game on your phone, chances are you are paying to play it by sharing some of your smartphone use data with the company that made it. 
free and discounted magazine subscriptions make a profit using this method. Companies that provide expedited government services, like those that help you submit your passport or visas, or those that help you register your car in a new state, most of them are data broker clients, buying and selling your information to make ends meet. Even some official government and government-tied services participate in this market. Credit bureaus and census hubs buy and sell this type of information, sometimes individually, sometimes only, in anonymized aggregate, to pay the bills and ensure their own records are as complete as possible. And increasingly, we are seeing a crossover between those sorts of entities and online businesses like Uber and Airbnb. A lot of the tech wizardry that seems like magic, the ability to instantly validate a new customer, for instance, even on a platform for which reputation is everything, like a ride-sharing service, they're able to achieve that instantaneity because they have access to information about you already. They borrow it from Facebook when you log in, or they can check your credentials against a database of similar credentials. Are you a criminal? Are you monetarily destitute? Are you a liability of some kind? They have ways, both overt and subtle, of keeping you off their service. If the data they have on you, which is connected to you by your login and other information, indicates that they should keep you out of their cars or from accessing their rental flats. An expanded version of this trend is already emerging in China, though it purportedly won't reach its full scope and become mandatory until 2020. The forthcoming Chinese social credit system works like most other credit systems. A credit system, utilized by your bank for instance, allows the bank to ascertain how big a risk you are, how likely you are to pay back the money they forward you, essentially. If you are a good bet, a safe bet, then your interest will be lower and capital easier to attain. If you're not considered to be such a safe bet, however, because you've gone bankrupt in the past, because you've reneged on payments owed previously, because you fit within one of many compartments the credit bureaus have identified as being associated with bad bets in the context of loaning money to people, well, you're out of luck. You may receive far more taxing conditions, higher interest rates, more collateral required, and things like that. Or you may be denied access to money in the first place, or maybe only granted access to very low quantities of money, whereas your neighbor, who has different circumstances from you, will have access to a large chunk of funds. This, by the way, is a very insidious mechanism of inequality that is baked deep within our economic infrastructure. Credit, arguably, is one of the inventions that made the modern world possible. It allowed us to create value from nothing, in a way, but to still ground that newly created value in concrete assets so things don't get totally out of control. It's a wildly imperfect system that nevertheless has proven to be super useful in a variety of ways. Being denied access to that system, to that big pool of credit-derived resources, resources to which other people have access, can be a big deal, especially when it means some types of people can get loans to buy a home while others cannot. Some types of people can get loans to invest in their business or start a new business while others cannot. Some types of people can get loans to pay for insane medical expenses, while others cannot. The concept and practice of credit and its associated loans and privileges is not meant to be discriminatory, but because of the way it's implemented, it often ends up being so. 
regardless. But I digress. The Chinese social credit system, which is still theoretical, but which is already decently well fleshed out, works in a similar fashion. Various bits of data about you are compiled to paint a portrait of who you are as a person. This data-derived portrait is then used to figure out all kinds of things about you, from the standard and fairly universal determination of whether or not you're a safe bet in terms of loaning you money, to other softer benefits like what schools your children can attend, and whether or not you are eligible to receive certain government-provided services. And this particular system is being watched carefully, and with no small amount of hyperbole, because of the mountains of data China has been collecting about its people, and because of the curriculum they will presumably be using for determining who is a good citizen and who is not. In other words, determining who is a good, loyal, non-troublemaking Chinese citizen who respects and expands the reach of the autocratic regime that runs the country, and who, well, isn't. Who's a troublemaker? Who doesn't toe the line? In a country and culture that, more than most, especially in the higher economic echelons of the world, celebrates group over individual, and walking in lockstep rather than to the beat of your own drummer. Comparisons have been made to George Orwell's 1984 and to an episode of Black Mirror called Nosedive, which takes place in a semi-idyllic world in which everyone is constantly raiding each other and their interactions with each other, and in which the reviews, the ubiquitous little stars and points we don't pay much attention to today, determine a person's place in a social media-derived caste system, establishing where they can live, what they pay for products and services, and whether or not they're allowed in certain public spaces. All of this could potentially be possible if enough data is fed to the right software and software wranglers and the implication, at the moment at least, still a few years out from when the system is set to go into full practice, is that China's social credit system could work in a similar fashion. And that system then could be replicated elsewhere, and the flaws inherent with it could then spread around the planet. As a direct result of China's own international efforts, but also as a result of copycat efforts from other countries' governments. Let's talk about data portability. The backbone of the argument in favor of data portability rights being established and implemented in some fashion, universally, is that we as individuals should have access to and control over the data that is being collected about us. We should know who has it, decide whether or not they should be allowed to keep it or use it for different purposes, and we should be able to use it ourselves for whatever we like, whether that means keeping it hidden and protected, crunching it in various ways for our own purposes and education, or selling it to a third party for personal profit. This concept flies in the face of how data is collected and managed and utilized today. At the moment, the companies that collect data about us tacitly own it. They sponge it up. They protect and defend it. They use it in all kinds of ways for their own gain and growth, and they sell it to other entities that do the same. In essence, these corporations, they do all the things that we should be able to do with our data according to the precepts of data portability. The best explanation and assessment of data portability that I came across while researching for this episode came from a British software engineer named Jenny Tennyson, 
who is, among other things, the CEO of the Open Data Institute, a UK-based nonprofit that exists, in essence, to educate people about and help them intelligently utilize their data. I will link to a post that she published on her blog, which is entitled Data Portability, in the show notes. But in it, she summarizes the data portability rights that folks in the EU will soon have under the GDPR when it comes into effect in May, along with a version of the same that will be written into UK law via the Data Protection Bill that is, as I record this, working its way through the House of Commons. In this piece, which is worth a thorough read, by the way, but in this piece, she argues that there are three main reasons for citizens to have formalized data portability rights. The first is that it provides more transparency than currently exists, helping those who wish to receive their data from big corporations or other data aggregators to bypass the stacks of relatively useless printed information they will most likely receive in lieu of receiving that data in a more portable, useful format if they request it today. The second is that it will allow consumers to change from one service provider to another based on merit, rather than because they're locked in to a particular phone company or social network or app, because the company or network holds their data, their operational history, their phone number, their records, their connections, their interactions, hostage. And the third is that it should help catalyze the world of third-party data analytics providers, meaning it should stimulate the growth of companies that you can hire to crunch your numbers to help you interpret your data, rather than Facebook hoarding your interactions and using all of that information to figure out how to show you more ads more frequently. You could take that data that they have collected and derive other information from it, using software and systems produced by third parties, who you could hire on a case-by-case basis, or whose software you could utilize for free or inexpensively yourself. Some of these providers may develop open-source software, some may provide access to it like any other software company today, but in either case, they will be more likely to be on your side, using your data for purposes you think are important, rather than that data being used against you, or merely for the benefit of the entity that is collecting it about you. Tennyson also does an amazing job of picking apart what makes data portability difficult and addressing how things might actually pan out when these regulations come into effect. In the case of the former, the regulation allows those entities which have your data a month to respond after you request it, and the regulation doesn't provide any guarantee that your data will be in a format that can be usable by any other entity. Meaning, you could request the raw data from your fitness tracker app, but they will have a month to get that data to you after you request it. And when you get it, you may not be able to funnel it into some new fitness app that you just bought. The two may not be compatible and are not required to be as a result of pending legislation. They are required to provide you with data in a commonly used format, but there are still a lot of options there, and not all are easily convertible. There's also a concern about how data transfers and the collection of that data will be conducted securely. Individuals will suddenly have their hands on the reins in this regard, and based on the numbers, the stats showing how many people are conned, hacked, 
fished, doxed, and otherwise taken advantage of, sometimes because they don't know enough to be properly careful, and sometimes because there's only so much you can do to protect yourself as an individual, the future of this space is uncertain. It may be that taking this data from databases controlled by multi-billion dollar corporations that can afford expensive and complex security measures and putting them on consumer hard drives may make that data less secure and more easily stolen and abused than it is today. And in terms of what might happen next in this space, Tennyson speculates that this legislation could backfire and actually lead to less innovation and competition as companies may be incentivized to follow the letter of the law, but not the spirit of it. They may cease to conduct R&D in this area and reshape their practices to ensure they do everything that's required of them, but not actually achieve the newly competitive consumer-empowered space that is the ostensible goal of this change. Perhaps most disconcerting, this move may actually put more power in the hands of the biggest corporations, those with the highest walls, in terms of the data they've hoarded and regularly collect, as they will be in the best position to help us leverage the data that we now personally control. They will also have more means of continuing to collect relevant data, which could lock us into their services, since their competitors will be smaller and won't have the right-sized background or resources to achieve the same things that they can. It could also be the case, and this seems very likely to me, that giving up our data, our now prepackaged data that we have rescued from the hands of these potentially abusive corporations, it could become customary to hand that data over when we join a new service. Imagine signing up to use Facebook or Google and being told that they can do more for you, can customize your experience, can give you more freebies if you let them know more about you. Suddenly, these larger entities can justify making that a part of the onboarding process because they know that most people will have a data file about themselves containing all of this information just sitting there waiting to be uploaded. They already do this with our contacts on our phones and in some cases our relationships and other data contained on competing social networks or software. So it stands to reason that, first, most people would be fine with this or not even really notice it was happening. And second, the companies in question would have no qualms about making this request and presenting it in a way that makes it seem as if they are doing us a favor. And one more potential byproduct of this shift, one that could be seen positively or negatively, depending on your perspective on things, is that having that chunk of data about yourself, all your running times, your shopping habits, your contact list, and health information, handy, right there, might mean that you are more tempted to simply sell that data to a data market of some kind. If you don't consider that information to be particularly damaging, or if you just assume, hey, it's all out there anyway, why wouldn't you click a button to upload it for, let's say, $200? Why wouldn't you just take that money? especially if it seems like the data is just sitting there gathering dust, not doing anything for you otherwise. And building on that, what if you were feeling generous and instead of taking the money, decided to donate your data to charity? You upload it to Planned Parenthood or the ACLU, and then you allow these organizations to benefit from it, both internally and on those data markets, so they could sell your data for profit as a donation. 
These are immensely important considerations. And frankly, I think there are just as many things to look forward to as there are things to be concerned about. That post at JennyTennyson.com lays out a great many of them cohesively and with more technical details that I won't dig into here. But along with those technical and applicational aspects of this impending change to European law, there are other broader considerations to keep in mind, questions to ask. Like, for instance, the question of whether this concept of data portability even makes sense in the first place. Should you actually control your data the way this new regulation allows? Aren't these companies the ones doing the work, collecting it for you? How is collecting this data, putting out their sensors and watching what happens, any different from doing the same in nature? From collecting data about caribou herds, or the quantity of water that passes through a particular stream or river, shouldn't they be rewarded for those research efforts? For making investments in the realms of data collection and data crunching? Is the concept of personal data sovereignty a legitimate one? Or is it just one answer to the growing concerns that some governments are harboring in response to the burgeoning power of technology companies? Is this not, perhaps, just a means of attempting to truncate the powers these corporations wield, seeing as how their power, at least partially, is predicated on knowing everything about everyone? Does it make sense to make this data more vulnerable, especially in the short term, but more liberated? Or does it make more sense to keep it more secure, but arguably less useful and beneficial for the individual? And how do we secure this information in the future, both when it is in transit from company to individual or vice versa, and once the individual or corporation has it themselves, presumably on their computer or some other device, or within one big location with millions of data points from millions of different people held in one place? Will data come to be treated like any other asset? with thieves sneaking in and stealing our files so they can turn around and sell them to data brokers? Will there be a set cost, data calculators, that will turn these data chunks into assets? Assets that can be tokenized, perhaps, using some kind of crypto coin or other blockchain-based mechanism. Or maybe there'll be something more like a music file today. You own your own health data and receive a royalty anytime someone else, some other entity, uses it within a study or on their social network or to train a new artificial intelligence. Will we be incentivized to generate more data about ourselves? to wear more trackers, to allow cameras and speakers and sensors to keep tabs on us 24-7, if we are, in turn, paid by companies who wish to access all the information being collected about us. If you were offered $200 a month to wear a fitness tracker and grant a corporation full access to the data that it collects, would you do it? How about $400 a month? How about $1,000? How invasive would such a situation need to become before any amount of money was no longer sufficient? Would you ingest a tracker or have one injected under your skin if you were paid $1,000 a month by a company who wished to use the data that it collected about you? How do we avoid the seemingly inevitable path of allowing insurance providers and other such companies to bifurcate their offerings based on data available about their potential clients? 
How do we inform ordinary non-tech-savvy people about the risks inherent in any kind of data, even the most mundane and seemingly innocuous? How do we have privacy if everything is out in the open and less secure? And how do we maintain the benefits of anonymity in a world in which data collecting and trading is a common activity, not just for companies, but for everyone? And how will we deal with the hard problems inherent in this type of data collection and utilization? Namely, that the metrics we use are flawed and often inconsistent, and that there's a bias baked in to any value judgments we might try to make about people, lacking complete knowledge about them, which at the moment at least is not possible. We will always lack that knowledge. So how do we avoid implementing a China-like social credit system, stratifying society because it's convenient and seemingly measurable, a system that allows us to track growth that might not actually be growth, that favors behaviors that may not actually be beneficial to society? How does this change in standards impact fields like healthcare and education and human resources? How might it benefit us to have certain quantified aspects of our personality out there for anyone to see? And how might we become weighed down by it or superseded by this seemingly meaningful jumble of data? How do we avoid letting our data define us? And when should we consider allowing it to do so? And perhaps most importantly, who decides how and when these standards change over time? If we find ourselves in a legislative dead end, how can we turn back the clock, remove the data from public view or from personal use or from individual possession to maybe take a different path? What, in other words, does a fail-safe look like when what we're talking about is information being disseminated differently? While we do have some answers, partial answers at least, at this stage in the game, we have vastly more questions that we do not yet have enough information to even attempt. Some of that will change in the very near future, first in the EU and the UK, and then in the following years in China and in other nations that decide to legislate in this space, attempting to wrangle control, or some control at least, of this new data reality. For individuals, the best thing to do in the meantime, I think, is to take stock of where we are already bleeding out data in our everyday lives and ask ourselves whether our current data expenditures, the places where we are granting access to our data, whether that's what we actually want, and then based on that, how we want our data treated in the future, how we want others to treat it, other companies and individuals, how we want to use it personally, how we want to protect it, how we want to generate more of it or keep more of it from being generated, how we want this space to look for ourselves as individuals moving forward, and then scaling that up to see what it looks like at the societal level. If you are enjoying Let's Know Things, consider taking a moment to leave a quick review upon Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Not all apps have an easy way to do that, so you may have to do a quick Google or you can find a link to the Apple Podcasts location for the show at letsknowthings.com. But taking that moment to do so helps a whole lot more than you might suspect 
especially for an unusual show of this kind and of this duration. Having an abundance of reviews helps people make the decision to give it a shot, to commit time to something that they are not guaranteed to enjoy. So if you're digging what I'm doing here, that would be a really, really wonderful way to help this show grow. Another great way to help support this show is to become a patron at patreon.com slash let's note things. And you might also consider picking up one of the books that I've written. You can find a complete list of those at colin.io. The book that I would like to recommend today is a nonfiction book called Drawdown, subtitle The Most Comprehensive Plan Ever Proposed to Reverse Global Warming. And the author is Paul Hawken. Now, this is unusual for me, as I've been listening to a whole lot of my nonfiction books as audiobooks of late, but I would not recommend the audiobook version of this book. It was not my favorite narrator, and because of the format of the book, it just wasn't a great way of taking it in. The book is essentially a massive list of the 100 most impactful practical things that we could do to reduce the effects of global climate change. And what that means in practice is you have essentially this list of plans of different main topics, things that you would implement, and then a rundown of how they would be implemented and exactly what implementation would achieve, exactly how much CO2 emissions would be reduced, how much it would cost. And the consequence of that is that you get a whole lot more data than you might from another nonfiction book on a similar topic that only gets into the broad strokes of things, tells a compelling story. This instead tells that overview story, but its real value, I think, is that nitty gritty. And the, the data, the research that's been done, the experiments that have been conducted, and then the examples showing where some of these things have been tried already on Earth in real life. Now, there are a lot of interesting concepts in that top 100 list. Some of them are fairly obvious, like switching to a renewable electric system that makes use of solar and wind and hydro and other green energy sources. But many of them are not as obvious, like implementing widespread family planning services and peatland management, managing peat bogs and such, and the planting of more tropical staple trees. So even some of those not-so-sexy-sounding concepts are super important. Better peatland management could actually help us reduce CO2 emissions more than increasing electric vehicle ownership by 16% by 2050. So those parts of the book in particular, outlining the things that are not focused on quite so much yet, the things that are happening in the background and that are not as easy to promote on a PR level, those are the portions of this book that really shine. But again, I would recommend picking up either a paperback or an ebook version. The audiobook version is just a little bit mind-numbing because of its presentation, in my opinion. Now again, that's called Drawdown, and the author is Paul Hawken. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at xllifestyle.com, and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode at letsnotethings.com. While there, you might also consider signing up for the free Let's Know Things newsletter, which is actually not so much a newsletter as it is a weekly collection of links to interesting things. Feel free to reach out on social media and say hello. I am at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram and pretty much everywhere else as well. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. 
Thank mm-hmm. you.